three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. Liftoff. Americans return to space as Discovery clears the tower. Welcome to Simply Youth Podcast. New episode every Friday on Spotify and more platforms. Hello everyone and welcome to our final episode of the Trip with the Stars mini-series. It has been a fun ride so far and this interview is the cherry on top. Today it is our pleasure to be accompanied by Dr. George Hello, one of the Lebanese pioneers and brilliant researchers in infrared astronomy. His work seeks to make us better understand the inner workings of the universe through observing and gathering information through infrared technology. Since 1983, Dr. Hello has at Caltech and at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Currently, he is the Executive Director of the Infrared Processing and Analysis Center. Thank you so much, Dr. Hedo, for accepting our invitation, and I'm really sure many space enthusiasts in Lebanon are excited to learn from you. So you were a physics major at AUB and then received a PhD in astrophysics and radio science from Cornell University. Back when uh, you were an undergraduate student, what did you imagine yourself working in and why physics? Uh, thank you, Lilia, for uh, hosting me today. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to, uh, to speak to you all. Um, so you're taking me back to AUB undergraduate years and why physics? Um, so this is an interesting story, which I think uh, may, uh, for young people, may, may hold a lot of uh, interest. When I was in high school, I decided I was passionate about astronomy and I wanted to study astronomy and I wanted to work in astronomy to the extent possible. But of course, that was not very realistic for a high school uh, student in Lebanon. Um, and of course, most people would sort of make fun of these uh, uh, aspirations. But occasionally there would be one person who would say, oh yeah, that's great, you should go for it. So when I got to AUB, I wanted to keep my options open to end up in astronomy. And, uh, and I got some very good advice from professors at AUB who said to go to astronomy, what you need is a solid foundation in math and physics. And so I said, fine, I'm going to study physics. And, uh, and AUB actually had uh, an extremely strong physics program at the time. They still do, but uh, uh, even back then, it was a, a great option. So I pursued that because I was hoping to keep my options open to go into astrophysics. And sure enough, uh, with the guidance I got there, I was able to apply to graduate schools in, uh, in astrophysics, and I got uh, uh, accepted to Cornell. Thank you, Doctor. That was a really nice background story of where you started. Um, our next question would be, um, your first NASA mission was on the infrared astronomical satellites, which became the first space telescope to map the majority of the sky at infrared wavelengths. What advantage does infrared technology provide us? Infrared technology allows us to detect infrared light. If you imagine yourself walking across the spectrum from blue to green to red and then continue past red, then you get to the infrared, which is the part of light which has longer wavelengths and lower pitch, if you'd like to think in, in terms of frequency. So because of these properties, uh, infrared light, which is the same basic phenomenon, electromagnetic phenomenon as visible light, because of these properties, it travels further in dusty regions, thus revealing phenomena and events that are hidden to visible light. And these dusty regions uh, are important to study because that's where stars are born. That's where the universe reinvents itself every day. This is you know, all about the inner workings of the universe. Uh, another special property of um, infrared is that it emanates from colder objects than visible light does. So it tells us about objects in the universe which are cooler than stars. Uh, 
and there's a lot to learn from these objects. You have to remember that the universe speaks to us at all wavelengths. The reason our eyes have favored visible light is that we have a star that glows in visible light, and therefore it is an evolutionary adaptation that our eyes are more sensitive to visible light than, than uh, any other part of the spectrum. And if, you, if we had to function primarily in the dark, we would probably have eyes that were sensitive to, uh, to infrared. Uh, so another nice property of infrared is that it has to do with the expansion of the universe. So when light travels across the universe over large distances, it gets stretched out just like the universe itself is expanding. And so visible light from galaxies from the very young universe, by the time that light arrives to us, it has stretched into infrared light. And so if you want to compare the distant galaxies to the local galaxies, you really want to observe the distant galaxies in the infrared and the local ones in the visible. And so this gives us, because that gives us the best counterpart for comparison. Uh, and so the further these objects are in the universe and the, further, the faster they're moving away from us, the further into the infrared part of the spectrum we need to go. And, and these, so these things uh, are, are these sort of three basic points really uh, uh, exemplify why infrared is so important. I can go into more technical details, but I think this is sort of the, the important part of the summary. Thank you. That was pretty amazing. Um, that's the least I can say. Um, from infrared deep universe space telescopes to tracking the rise of dust, and as you spoke about expansion and all that, um, what can we learn about the formation of the universe? You know, because this, this is this wants to like satisfy the question that every single person has ever asked how was the universe formed it is true that in the infrared and even the very far infrared what we start calling the submillimeter these are the regions of the spectrum where we study the the very early universe the very formation of the universe this is how the closest we can get to the moment the universe started is in the very far infrared or the submillimeter as we also call it and in fact, we have been able to take a picture of what is often called the baby universe, which is the first moment that a shape can be associated with the universe. And that's what we call the cosmic microwave background radiation. The most recent beautiful pictures of that moment in time were obtained by the Planck mission that I worked on. But my research has mostly been not so much about that earliest moment of the universe, but more about what happens after that earliest moment to take the universe from this very uniform, very uh, hot fireball, if you'd like, to today's universe, which is highly contrasted, highly structured. We have objects that are extremely dense and, and spaces which are extremely and loosely uh, populated with atoms. Uh, and we have planets supporting life. We have you know, black holes and organized spiral, beautiful galaxies and all of these amazing phenomena, which are very different from the picture of the universe you see when it's just emerging from the moment of its formation. It would allow us to see how the first molecules and dust grains form from gas atoms, from atoms in, in the gas phase, it would give us the earliest evidence for black holes growing by amassing gas from their surroundings. And it, it would give us not just those first glimpses, but also it would give us a, a, the progression of how you go from these 
first to the intermediate stages to the universe as we as we know it now. And the other great revelation was the all the things we learned about exoplanets that are orbiting other stars. Um, in particular, the, the planets that may have been discovered by other instruments. So Spitzer was not big on discovering new exoplanets, but once an exoplanet was discovered, Spitzer was the instrument of choice for characterizing those planets. So we could measure, for instance, their temperature. We could measure whether they had an atmosphere or not. We could measure um, uh, how exactly how large they were with respect to their star. Uh, we could sometimes measure the difference between the temperature on the day side and the night side of those um, uh, planets. We could measure if they had an atmosphere. We could measure if they had wind or not. Um, we could map the temperature sometimes. So the, the insight into the properties of exoplanets uh, that we read, I think, is the, is the other sort of great reference point from, uh, from Spitzer. I should also add that it's not just the images that gave us uh, information. I, I want to point out that many of the discoveries were obtained from spectra. So spectra, what I mean by that is just think about how the, you disperse the colors of you know, the sun in a rainbow. Uh, you do the same thing with infrared light, but when you disperse that light, you find that there are signatures that tell you about atomic and molecular content of nebulae, of galaxies at different epochs and so on. And most of the exoplanet science was actually obtained not so much from taking images or pictures of these exoplanets, but from tracking very accurately the brightness of individual stars to learn about the planets orbiting them. We got to the point where we could measure to say 10 or 20 parts per million, the brightness of the star. And then when we could see variations at the level of say 50 parts per million, that was enough for us to learn about the exoplanets going around those stars. And that kind of accuracy was not something that we had anticipated. Uh, it is a, it's, it, it's a result of very careful uh, utilization of the telescope and its capabilities. That was really sort of a, a bonus, so to speak, that, that we had not um, expected to be able to achieve. But uh, once we started operating the telescope, we just tried everything we could to, uh, to improve on those uh, performances. And sure enough, we, we got down to some exquisite accuracies with the data that we were collecting. So like to expand on the exoplanets, there was the TRAPPIST-1 system of seven planets, which was the first known set of habitable ones outside our solar system. So can, can you tell us more about the system and how do you compare TRAPPIST-1 to our solar system? And why did planet E stand out the most to researchers? Is that okay? Yeah, definitely. Go ahead. Yes, there would be no issue. Okay. Um, so the TRAPPIST system was first uh, came to our attention because of the fact that it harbored seven planets. Which is not, which at the time was not very common. Now we know about two or three such systems, uh, but that's very important because it tells us about the fact that it is not uncommon for planets to form in systems rather than forming individually around stars. Uh, moreover, these planets were in orbits that were nicely organized in one plane and stable, so you could imagine that this would, these uh, planets would last for a long time in these orbits and therefore would allow life to develop 
or at least would allow processes to, to uh, develop for a long time. Um, the second reason for this system being very exciting to us is that um, it didn't have any of these huge planets that would disrupt the other small planets. So that goes to the stability. But more importantly, given the size of the orbits for these planets and given the brightness of the star that they were orbiting, they are getting the kind of illumination that is quite similar to the illumination that is received by planets in our solar system. And so, uh, in fact, if you, if you compare the two, you'll find that the TRAPPIST system has three or four planets. And you know, I, I'm being a little bit uh, fuzzy here, but uh, uh, just because the, the precision is, a, is, is, a, is not perfect. Uh, it has three or four planets that have the same amount of illumination as Venus, Earth, and Mars. And so these are what we call terrestrial planets, meaning they are mostly formed of rock. They may have a little bit of an atmosphere. We're not quite sure how much of an atmosphere they have. Uh, and uh, But they get the kind of illumination that would allow them to have water in the range of ice to maybe clouds and warm water in the atmosphere. Uh, so this is this was another reason that we got very excited about them. Uh, this was a great laboratory, if you'd like, to study Earth-like planets uh, in an Earth-like illumination environment. And uh, I mentioned they are Earth-like; they are they are mostly rocky. Uh, and so it turns out that the size of these planets also ranges between roughly Mars and Earth. Uh, so they are the, the, the right size, they are the right illumination, the right amount of heat they receive, uh, and they are in stable orbits. So that's, a, that's the place where you would want to look for life if you expected life to be like what we know on Earth. Uh, and the last reason that we got excited about the system is that they are, it is relatively nearby, so it makes it easy to study with, with existing telescopes and with future telescopes. So this is why this system got so much attention because it's really as close to an analog to the, at least to the terrestrial planets in our system, meaning um, Venus, Earth, and Mars, as close as we can get. And it turns out, in fact, that with the study of the system, we were able not just to measure the, the duration of the orbits, we were able to measure the masses of most of these planets. So now we have a mass, we have a radius, and so we can tell what the density is. And it turns out the density is pretty much what you expect for a rocky planet, like Earth. Uh, so we, we, we have more information about this system than uh, any other system because it got so much study. And in fact, we almost have more information about it than we have about our own solar system in terms of just the, the overall uh, uh, architecture and, and precision of the orbits and so on, and, those, and the masses. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not too much. So the, the point is that this is an extremely well-studied system, and it presents a lot of opportunity for us to understand how um, the most likely places for uh, life might look like in the universe. 
it's a new and intriguing perspective on uh, the Trappist one and the exoplanets and all of that. Now, at one point, uh, we brushed the subject of spiral-shaped galaxies. This got me a bit excited because one of my favorite pictures was of the NGC 1097, which is a spiral-shaped galaxy with a massive black hole at its center. Can you expand a bit more on the study of black holes and the star formation around this black hole's ring, like this specific black hole? Right, so black holes are endlessly fascinating uh, for scientists as well as for the public. This, the, this is one of those topics that uh, uh, never ceases to uh, amaze and surprise. We have learned a lot about black holes, but there are still there are still quick questions that we haven't answered about how they form and evolve, when, when in the universe. Uh, there is a, a new round of black holes that has been discovered in the past few years. Um, that are uh, much lower mass than the ones we see in the centers of galaxies. And many questions, many new questions have emerged about their origin and how they relate to the more massive ones. So Spitzer was exceptionally good at studying black holes in galaxies because it could see close to them through the dust. That is impossible to pierce with visible light, as I explained before. So that gave it a leg up on, on visible light telescopes. And one of the greatest tools we had with Spitzer was combining the, these stunning images like 1097, which is one of my favorites, combining that with the spectra that Spitzer obtained, which could tell us about the composition of the, of the gas, but also from that we could derive the source of the energy. So we could tell is it the black hole radiation or is it radiation from young luminous stars that is glowing in that in a given point in the galaxy? Um, so with these tools, we were able to tell that that ring is actually making stars. And it's making stars actually in, in, in large quantities. Whereas the black hole is glowing because it's pulling gas into its gravitational grip and that generates its own type of radiation. The black hole radiation is richer in X-rays and UV and ultraviolet, uh, and that's more destructive than the kind of light we get out of luminous young stars. Uh, so we know from indirect evidence that there is a complex interplay between the star formation in the ring and that black hole amassing of gas. But we haven't figured out all of the physical mechanisms so we can develop a clear picture of how the two sources affect each other, how they co-evolve in a single galaxy. So for instance, if the black hole radiation is, has a lot of X-rays and UV and gamma rays, it might impede the star formation because it ionizes the clouds, it heats up the clouds out of which stars might form. But we don't see that all the time. So how, how do the two phenomena coexist? How do they co-evolve? Is this something that happens for a brief period of time, or is it something that happens over a long period of time? Does, does the inhibition of star formation happen all of a sudden and then fade away? Or uh, is it something that develops over a long period of time? And so it gives you have more time for the two phenomena to go hand in hand, and then one takes over. So there are lots of these kinds of questions. Spitzer did a great job uh, uh, with deciphering a lot of these mysteries. And I think the next round of information will come from the 
James Webb Space Telescope. Your work has been so fascinating so far, to say the least. So what are you working on currently and what is your vision in the future for your field? So as you heard, one of my current pursuits is just thinking about future projects where we could build on what we have learned from Spitzer and, and other infrared telescopes for the next great infrared telescope in orbit. Um, and that's uh, ongoing work. These, these projects take a very long time to develop. So, you know, I work on them, but it's, it's really um, building for the future. And I, you know, I have no idea when that next great infrared telescope will fly, uh, but I can only hope that I, I will see those results uh, one of those days. Um, so that's one thing I'm pursuing. In terms of uh, more specific uh, scientific research, I have continued to work on uh, on star formation histories, uh, on um, the role of black holes and what you can learn from their variability over time. Is there uh, any indication that that variability is has some sort of periodicity that tells you about a recurring phenomenon uh, or is it a variability which is randomized and so it only tells you about just the, the process through which the black hole is attracting these gas clouds and uh, absorbing them to generate its uh, energy. Uh, in, in my uh, current situation being the director of IPAC, I get interested in lots and lots of different things and so I work on many different topics and uh, to my surprise as well maybe as to, to anyone who's followed my career, I got interested most recently in uh, small bodies in the solar system. And so there was a, a survey from the ground actually, from the, from the Palomar Observatory that was uh, just surveying the sky repeatedly every night, uh, mapping the whole sky that is visible and just again and again. And that gives you an opportunity to see uh, phenomena that, are, that have a time dependence. And I decided to get interested in trying to use those repeated looks at the sky to find asteroids, in particular near-Earth asteroids and asteroids in peculiar orbits. So um, near-Earth asteroids are important because we want to find them before they find us. Uh, and so there's a, a large effort by NASA to try and collect as much information about these asteroids as possible to anticipate the ones that might hit Earth and see what we can do to uh, uh, avoid that. Uh, so that's a whole fascinating topic. But what I've been doing is using the, um, the data from the survey called the Zwicky Transient Facility to look for these near-Earth asteroids. And as we were looking for those, we made one very interesting discovery, which is that we discovered the first asteroid that sits in an orbit that's completely contained inside the orbit of Venus. Those have been hypothesized before, but we've never really found any. And so this was a, a, a surprising and rewarding discovery to find such an object. We also added multiple uh, objects. In fact, um, added uh, about 40% to the count of asteroids which sit completely inside of Earth orbit. And the importance of doing these finds is to understand the history of these asteroids, how they get there, where they come from and what their likely future 
orbital evolution is. Will they end up hitting Earth? Will they end up hitting um, uh, Venus? Or will they end up escaping? So that whole topic of the dynamics of the asteroid uh, population is a very interesting one. Um, so these are the kinds of things I'm, I'm doing now, which are new and different apart from uh, continuing with the uh, infrared astronomy from, uh, from past projects. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Simply Youth Podcast for more content.